Well, if you ever wondered why we call ourselves Instec, then this interview with Todd Rissell, founder of E2Value, is a hint at the answer. Of course, we are big fans of the new companies entering into the insurance to shake things up and make the world a better place. But there are still a lot of companies that predate the emergence of InsurTech that are launching new products with new technology and new data. Some of these are definitely worth knowing about, whatever your role, and E2Value is one of them. Well, indeed, ironically, this morning I had an email from the CTO of a very well-known global technology company that is older even than Robin and I. I'm not going to reveal who it was, but the gist of his email is as follows. Matthew, you asked recently if there are any companies Instec should be hearing from. Well, we do have a world-leading solution that most people have never heard of. We have 20 clients globally and are processing billions of units a year. Well, it sounds like they need to become Instec corporate member, first of all, so we can tell the world what they're up to, but maybe we'll get them onto the podcast soon. But it does reinforce the point that whilst InsurTech has been getting a lot of love in the last five years, the newcomers are not the only game in town. Now, E2Value was founded by Todd 20 years ago. At the time, Todd was an appraisal manager working for Insurant Chubb. Today, the company has over 500 clients. Now, COVID may have kept Todd and his colleagues stuck at home for a while, but that hasn't stopped them releasing two new products that build on the information that E2Value licenses, that's data and analytics that help define property rebuild costs in the US and Canada. You're going to hear more in a minute about both of these, Structural Information Score, or SIS, and Inspect Connect. And again, thank to all of you regular listeners or your first-timers. Please keep telling me what you like about the podcast, and better still, tell your colleagues and clients about what we're up to at Instec London. We may have been away from face-to-face events for a year and a half now, but our digital community has blossomed during that time. We've now well over 20,000 people engaging with us regularly around the world, close to a third of you in the US, by the way. Uh, I'm Matthew Grant, and together with Robin Mertens, we are the partners at Instec London, and we're supported by a great team these days. So if you want to ramp up how you are sharing your stories and vision with the world, or tap into what we're discovering about some of the clever technology and business applications out there to help you as an insurer or a broker, then please do contact us on LinkedIn or via hello at instec.london. Or better still, come and see us in the flesh on 14th of September or, thanks to Todd, 11th of October in London. Registration on the website. Now, here's Todd. Todd, you are a long-standing personal friend and friend of Instat London and one of my earliest podcast guests. So I, I'm going to put the success of the Instat London podcast down partly to you for uh, helping us get it off the ground. Welcome. Thank you, Matthew. I, I think you're kind to do that, but I don't think I have anything to do with the, the success of your podcast or Instec London, but I appreciate that. Well, talking of success, I mean, you yourself are the founder of a company that has been going for over 20 years. You clearly had to be innovative 20 years ago. You are now, I think, helping over 500 companies understand the rebuild cost of buildings in the US and Canada, but you, you haven't stopped there. But before we talk a little bit about what you're doing now, anything I've missed in that description of what you're doing, you'd like to build on that? No, I think that the uh, the two things we've always worked on is, you know, the, the data that's about the structure, what the structure is made of, as well as value. Yeah, and it's more important in the US than in the UK, because in the UK, insurers are a bit more forgiving, and it doesn't usually these days require a full valuation or rebuild valuation. I think in the US, if people don't get that right, then they can actually have their, their payment reduced for, for lack of getting the coverage right. The case law right here is that um, the person who insures the structure, the homeowner, is responsible for the value. 
And so there's some legal action going on in California now, as you probably see in the news, along with, uh, you know, Greece and Turkey. Uh, California's on fire, Oregon's on fire. And the fallout from those major events, especially in, you know, litigious society, is that the current rule may change. But for right now, the person who takes out the policy is responsible for it. And of course, I mean, you're not just looking at losses from catastrophes, but there's all sorts of different kinds of attritional losses that can happen to property. So yeah, presumably over, over time, you've actually got some very good data to calibrate and validate against what you're actually publishing and helping insurance companies with. The real issue for insurance are small losses. But if you don't know what you're insuring, you don't have the proper amount, it's hard to set the rate. And uh, since we're going to talk about what's going on in the insure tech world, it still comes down to what we think is a big part of the fundamental issue. You know, if you don't collect enough premium, you'll never make money. Yeah, and sometimes it's important to come back to those basic rules. So you brought up InsureTech. You existed or you started off the business well before the term InsureTech was invented. Innovation, as I have to remind people sometime, was in existence before 10 years ago or five years ago when the term InsureTech was invented. From a sort of high-level view as how you've built the company, I mean, how have you innovated and continue to stay fresh Within, within U2 Valley over the years? It's the 30th anniversary of the starting of the World Wide Web. And so I think sometimes we get caught up in the, you know, how fast or how slow InsureTech is coming or technology is coming. The core of what we did kind of goes back to our founding and how it's easy to innovate around the core because our core was we wanted to solve a problem for our clients. The problem was agents, brokers, insureds, Underwriters all wanted to be on the same page when it came to setting the value of what they're insuring. Then they can make the right, you know, risk uh, mitigation plan uh, from there and the right policies, the right coverages, right rates, et cetera. Um, but, you know, the real core of it, as long as the data is good, we we focus on the data, the technologies around it will always change. You know, we're not a software company, even though we deliver in software. We're a data company that uses software. What is it that you do to keep? the business fresh and, and how are you learning from your clients? What is it that you're doing with them that helps you understand what their needs are and continue to evolve the core product? We're from insurance. You know, the, the DNA of, of E2 Value, my co-founder, George Moore, and I both work at an insurance carrier. Um, the, most of the people that work at E2 Value have, you know, uh, a background in the insurance world. So we understand insurance. Um, we also understand technology. Uh, but the other part of it is we started because there was a need in the marketplace that consumers of this product, clients of this product felt wasn't being met. And so by listening to our clients and listening to what they wanted to solve, you know, we stay in touch with them and what their challenges are. I think it's a blend because if I think Henry Ford said, you know, if you ask people what they wanted, they would have said faster horses, right? Because they couldn't imagine an automobile. Staying in touch with them is a, is a key piece of why we think we still have as many clients as we have and continue to keep, you know, add to that. And that kind of does lead us on then to the, the, the products you've released or the new products. So one of those we're going to talk about is the structural score or SIS, which is the way you've taken the data that you're using for the understand the rebuild costs and actually started to create a slightly different underwriting tool. Can you just talk a little bit about you know, how that works in practice and maybe also just, you know, where did that idea come from? The structure insurance score, uh, SIS, it's a score for insurance uh, structures. The idea is, you know, like with auto underwriting and pricing, 
um, you separate the value of the item from what's going to happen to it. In the case of homes, you know, it's, it's typically fires, water from inside the home or weather, uh, you know, something that happens outside the home. And those are the three big categories that drive losses, uh, typically smaller losses. If you look at the home rating plans, it's value dependent. And so the theory is, is that a $400,000 house and an $800,000 house are going to be exposed to the same losses. But an $800,000 house, the premiums, you know, not two times, but it is in relationship uh, continuous with the value of the of the of the property where realistically, um, you know, the losses are going to affect the homes the same. And so the structure score looks at a home. And breaks it down to its propensity to damage, you know, like an auto. Is this car going, if it hits a car, is it going to be easily damaged or hard to damage? And then, you know, after the damage happens, is it expensive to repair or less expensive to repair? And so that structure score looks at homes that way. And so uh, we're very happy because Willis Towers Watson um, worked with us uh, to put their IP on top of our IP. And so that's how it works out. So it's a it's combined product with the E2 value data and information about a home combined with the Willis Towers Watson analytics uh, on, you know, pricing and losses. And just another way to look at pricing for homes and realistically start the journey to separate the value from the rate calculation. How is that going out in the marketplace? It's a joint product, so Willis and E2 Value uh, sell the product together. It's a product you end up purchasing through Willis, um, and so it's it's been a long journey. You know, it's probably been five years, and in that time, our friends at Willis have filed the the rates with the various states and the ability to have the for carriers to be able to use uh, the tool in the various states. So we're up over 40 states of acceptance and use capability. The other part of that journey is the the company's uh, policy administration system. The policy administration system has to be able to to adjust the score and use the score, even though it's a very small, limited uh, API. Uh, there still needs to be drawn in there, and so that's been the longest part of the five-year journey. But the good news is um, we've got uh, we'll be over double-digit clients using the SIS uh, in 2022. And our friends at Brightcore, which is a policy administration system here in the states, have have integrated it. So if they're a Brightcore client, it's, it'll be a quick integration. Uh, but other providers are also working it as we speak. But it's uh, it's been an interesting journey. The two things I like about it, it's very predictive, you know, of what your your losses are going to look like, and it really aligns rate with exposure, which I think is the key of what we started doing when we started E2 Value. Of course, for those aren't familiar with the U.S., if you're an admitted carrier, i.e. you're an insurance company that's registered to underwrite in the U.S., they need to actually get approval from this, the insurance commissioner by each state. Correct. Right. So the, the commissioners and all of them, and the various offices will look at what you're doing, whatever you're rating. So simple things from a carrier wants to input a 10 percent rate increase in the the insurance office at a particular state may or may not approve 10 percent or may do a, a lower number. Um, to things like using credit score or using loss history or anything like that. The regulators look at that process and the, the uh, SIS is a brand new tool. They want to make sure it wasn't uh, penalizing a certain part of the, of the population. And, and one of the things that 
we've shown and one of the things I think people will see is that it it really is not a value dependent item. It is, you know, two two hundred thousand dollar houses, one compared to the other, two multi million dollar homes, one that compared to the other, and one can have a greater propensity to loss and or damage than another one. I want to congratulations because I know that process is not straightforward and, and as you said it varies by state. And the, the other point you made in there which had me smiling and I'm sure people who are listening to it could sort of sympathize with what you've gone through. So five years to get companies to actually or policy administration systems and others to be able to integrate with you. I guess it's sort of like, can you survive long enough that these systems can start to build out APIs and other integrations or you know, other companies are going to come in and build those from scratch. But it sounds like that's still a little bit of a struggle with some of these legacy systems to basically get them to integrate with third party applications. The good news is, as I mentioned, when you have a return that we're talking about, there's a, there's a pretty good business case for that. You've built up, you know, the states have accepted it. And I think the important thing for some people to pay attention to is carriers are using it. So they'll be able to use it to discern how to apply their rate and maybe perform better than other carriers. And just on that sort of broader topic then about platforms and then it gets us into ecosystems and partnerships, you know, both free to value and also for SIS, I know you're working with other third parties to distribute the product and integrate it. Are there any companies you can call out specifically that people might be aware of or have been a sort of useful way to get access to your analytics? We have a bunch of partners, so I hate to call out one or two to emphasize those over the numbers we have, but uh, there's a good chance today that if, if someone is shopping for insurance, like home insurance on the on the web, you know, they're using E2 value technology to figure out if it's a good risk, a not so good risk, it meets their profile, doesn't meet their profile, the rate they should apply along through there. So there's a number of providers in that marketplace, but, you know, some Instech London, uh, companies, you know, like Hazard Hub is a good, good partner of ours doing a lot what they do with uh, GIS information. We have another GIS provider, MapRisk, that we work with. Um, same idea. They, you know, they bring excellent data to bear. We work with uh, BetterView, a lot of great partnerships just in those, those three. And thank you for your in- introduction to those organizations. And we're delighted to have Bob and John from Hazard Hub as members. And, you know, what I'm hearing, in London, their, their data is, uh, is doing really well. So really, really good partners. The other product you've released now, which is Inspect Connect, which is a way you've, I think a classic example, you came across a challenge for underwriters wanting to get, get information about their clients or potential clients when they were looking to get a quote. You've built a tool that actually helps get information more efficiently than the old fashioned way of picking up the phone or sending emails or maybe even sending faxes. I don't know if that still happens anywhere in the world apart from Japan. I've been asked to send a fax in the last month by by a party, and I forget what it was for. I don't know where to get a fax. But anyway, what started to happen, we could see happening was, so if you're a, you know, a broker working with a wholesaler, whomever today, you get an application, and then we offer a way to offer, you know, data to verify that information in the application. And what would happen is it would be different. And a great example that came to the top was someone wanted $4 million of coverage for their home in California. But when you ran it through the data, the data and our tool pointed to a million dollars, like the home's only worth a million dollars from an insurance perspective. That's the age old question of what we're tools trying to help people solve is understanding an insurable value versus market value. Um, but what happened was the underwriter presented with two sets of information tended to switch to what the application provided, even though data 
was out there and publicly available data and ways to check it. So Inspect Connect is just a simple way for that underwriter to either text to the broker or even text to the client or a caretaker or even and send an email to have that person verify that information. It takes three minutes and, you know, they just go through, say, yep, that's the right information. Maybe answer a question, take a picture or two if you wanted them. And in three minutes, you can solve that issue. Is the data correct? Is the application correct? And sometimes maybe neither one is correct. And this one three-minute uh, interaction can put everything to bed right at the beginning of writing the policy. What I, I really like about what you've done with Inspect Connect is that you've taken a little bit of the existing underwriting process that's broken or is slow. You've come up with a technology solution that just very elegantly fits into that process. So you're not going back to the underwriter and say, look, you've got to totally redesign your process or spend vast amounts of money. Now you just use a system and send a text. And so... I'm seeing a trend certainly out there of organizations being quite successful where they just literally slot that technology into existing process and then therefore you can get really quick adoption. So I can see why that's, you know, would be popular. How's it going in practice? Are you, you seeing that? You seeing good take up? Yeah, we have a, we have a number of beta clients right now. We introduced it this summer with the idea that they would uh, tell us what we got right or wrong in the process. In September, we'll have the ability for clients to start using it. There's a lot of regulation around how you can text someone and follow up with texting them, and they can opt out of texting. So the insurance part was actually pretty easy compared to making sure you can comply with contacting people uh, with that. So that we'll roll that out in September. We've got a number of, uh, in this case, inspection vendors who have signed up to use that process and we're looking for carriers to start, you know, maybe later in November, early December. At least you've got the telephone number to text them. You know, one of the challenges in the UK when people have been looking at doing that, or you know, one example is looking at giving out flood alerts, is they just don't have the either they don't have the policyholder's telephone number or it's buried deep in some other system and they just can't get to it. So I yeah, I think it does still come back to the the burden of legacy is still out there. It, it, it is. It is. It's like we, we, that's the other thing. We can use either email or text. So, you know, you, you've got the chance somewhere in there that you're going to get someone's the, the ability to contact someone. And, yeah. and the idea is it's not a 100% solution. I don't want to, like, you know, this is, if you can answer this question 60 70% of the time, even 30% of the time, it's a huge time saver. And like you said, there's no system to invest in. Um, I think, I don't know if low code and no code is still a vernacular we're talking about, but it's just you log in, send the text, send the email, and again, in three or four minutes, you have the answer. Like a lot of the brokers that we've worked with, in addition to carriers and inspection vendors, like if they can be talking to a client while they're writing the policy and while they're still on the phone with them, say, could you, I'm going to send you a text, could you take a few Mm. pictures and answer these questions? And so again, it's a little extra time, but most people, are pretty capable of answering texts these days and, and taking pictures. And there's, I got no technology, no app, and people can put it in apps or people can in, in put it inside their own applications or use it standalone. Yeah, no, it is. I mean, it's a classic example of low code. I mean, we sometimes think low code is like big, complicated systems with you know, less complicated code. But actually, those that's a classic example where you just solve a key problem with, yeah, with something that people are familiar with. I mean, it's an excellent way to distribute new product. And then Todd, you've, you've spent a bit of time over in the UK talking both to people building technology, but also to the insurers. We could spend a whole podcast on this topic alone, but high level, what's your perception of the, the approach to innovation in the UK versus, versus in the US? 
my 10,000 or 30,000 foot view is that there's more discussion around it in the UK. There's more people interested about the topic and how they can bring that to bear in the marketplace. But I also think it's a, and I, I hope you forgive me for this, but it's a smaller market, right? So it's easier to bring things to bear in certain respects, in certain ways. And so it's a great, um, again, if you'll forgive me, Petri dish for, for innovation and process in, in a very nice controlled environment. And I think the other part that lends itself is your market. I was uh, amazed at how inexpensive home insurance is in the UK compared to the US. Not as many fires, not as many hurricanes, you know, technically the, the houses don't have the same number of total losses, et cetera. So I can understand what drives it. But I think at the same time, if the, if the premiums are that low, you know, you have less room for margin and less margins. And so there's probably another underlying case where you want to solve that problem, how to bring technology in and, and make better margins. Yeah, and that's a really good point. I mean, the extreme version of that is when you get into micro insurance in Africa and they, you know, they're, they're looking at cents and the dollar to go and buy insurance. It could be really innovative. I mean, the UK insurance is cheaper you know, with climate change and all the recent wildfires we're seeing, you know, in Europe now. I wouldn't want to say we're forever going to be, you know, have lower risks here from the US. But the other thing, of course, is we tend to have all encompassing policies. So things like flood are included, whereas in the US, clearly that's a separate policy so um yeah it is and then lloyd's is a good petri dish you know partly because they write around the world partly because there's you know, it's not it's not regulated or it's not regulated in the sense from a rating point of view it's regulated in other ways so they can move more quickly and um the decisions are a little bit quicker because they're all physically in the same place but the flip side so what's your so what's your thoughts on this so you say there's more discussions about innovation in the uk but yet in the us the sizes of funding you know from venture capitalists and others is uh, is significantly higher. So obviously, as you said, it's a bigger market. Is that just driving it? Is there something else happening? Do you think, from the investment point of view, in the uh, in the U.S. versus in the U.K.? I think it's a you know, with all the investment, I'm reminded of what a, a bank robber. I forget the person's name said, but it was asked by the press, "Why do you rob banks?" And his answer was, "That's where the money is." And so I think that that's, you know, part of the reason that there's a lot of investment in the U.S. It's a big market. Right? It's multi, multi-billion dollar uh, market. And just one or two points is a significant impact and a good way to get your investment back. That's a, that's a great quote. I'll remember that next time someone asks me a difficult question. And uh, and talking about London and the U.K., we're delighted to have you supporting us again for our event coming up on the 11th of October, uh, all being well. I think we're tracking quite nicely towards this. Um, events are going to be open. Nightclubs are going to be open, which is quite important as we hold our events in a nightclub. And I'm pretty sure we're going to get 250 people on stage uh, and to see you face-to-face. So thanks for your, your faith in supporting that. Is there anything we should be looking out for and anything you particularly would like to talk to people face-to-face about when you're coming over and, and can see them? Well, thank you, Matthew. I, I do enjoy your events very much. I think that's where we first, uh, you know, not bonded. We, we met before that, but I, you know, just very impressed with the audience, very impressed with the, and that kind of goes back to your question about UK versus US. I think it, it's a concentrated group. So you get a lot of good uh, companies in one small area who can show up in an event like that. And, um, just the level of interest of, 
of, you know, a collective group trying to solve a collective issue uh, is very, very impressive to me. And I think that the other the levels of folks you can have discussions with from people just entering into the marketplace to some senior people and everybody in between. So you really get a great broad perspective of back to our point of what people are facing. I'm looking forward to just seeing people. I've been stuck inside and I did want to mention, I, I hope you're okay because I've been watching Netflix and prime. And I think every third program is about a serial killer in the UK and a sort of off detective who would love to solve it, but has some emotional problems or lost someone. And so we were talking about last night, like, is there, is there anyone left in the UK that's not been attacked by a serial killer? And so, you know, this thing, we've been home too long. I've been home too long and I look forward to having a real conversation with people and really hearing face to face, which we don't get 30 people, 20 people and information, direct feedback at one location. Yeah, I, well, there's still lots of people around. I think you've probably your choice of programs reflects uh, your risk profile. Maybe uh, no, we've been we're, we've we've got capacity for 250 people, and uh, based on we had a, a test run with our summer party, uh, had 150 for that, and uh, you'll be pleased to know that thanks for your support, the quality of refreshments at our evening events continues to improve. I'm sure that's not the only reason people people turn up um and of course i'm you know repaying the favor so i'm coming back over to talk at um brian sullivan's event the property insurance report which you kindly introduced me to so we're going to use the opportunity to spend some time in the u.s as well uh you know talking to you and some other people and uh yeah return the favor and and bring in stack on tour so very much looking forward to that um and then todd as it's just you and i on this call um Another question I had for you was, you know, there's quite a few, you know, we've mentioned highly funded organizations coming up that are underwriting. Uh, you know, Hippo's just gone public recently. You know, Lemonade went public. Root, I know that's more motor. But, yeah, you know, in, in the sort of the scale of things, what's, you know, it's a big question, but any sort of observations about, you know, the benefits or challenges of being a you know, highly funded startup that's got to grow rapidly and demonstrate return? Yeah, are they, are they, and obviously they haven't got a legacy stack. They've got to a legacy tech stack. They've got to, to work with. But, you know, what's your observation on what we should be looking at or all looking for from those companies? Don't hold me to any particular standards for prognostication because I'm not sure I, I have any capabilities in that, but it's interesting. And I think it goes back to the root of the issue. If you have a legacy book, you have a legacy. We talked about policy systems and things. Will you know, that you had on your podcast just a few weeks ago points out just the vast amounts of, of income and revenue that's generated, uh, where, you know, the insure tech is a small part and it's just moving a little bit of that technology and you can't, you know, throw out, at least in most cases, throw out the baby with the bathwater if it's making $8 billion or whatever it is in, in revenues. And so it's easier, right? From a startup standpoint, you, you've got nothing that's in your book, but you also don't have a surplus. And so it's an interesting balance. So when I looked at Lemonade, um, just had their results and they had, you know, another loss. And so it's how long can they sustain a loss? Are they, you know, and I look at it as a full stack carrier, can they sustain a loss or how long will their backer sustain the losses? And, you know, the different metrics to measure things by. And I think, um, you know, it's, it's when people talk about disruption, uh, I'm reminded that, uh, and I think we talked about television and MTV, but, you know, from broadcast television to where we are today with the multiple choices of, of British uh, crime shows that I can see, you know, that was a 70-year journey. And I think, because I mentioned the web's only been around 30 years and in short tech, 
you know, I'm not sure. I was speaking at PIR 10 years ago telling people that public data is good and you should be able to use public data. And so just the acceleration that's taken place, and that's where I think uh, Hippo is a good example, Lemonade is a good example of where they were able to come in, use technology, ramp up pretty quickly. But I think there are challenges also. Can that be sustained? Um, and will they be a full stack carrier? Uh, I think Hippo's total market valuation is around four and a half billion or five billion, which is Im- unbelievably impressive in their, in their time frame. But like Allstate bought National General last year and they for four billion. So it's easy enough that, you know, scalable enough that that innovation can be brought into a carrier and make a big difference. Yeah, and the podcast you refer to is William Hawkins from KBW, who's an equity analyst. Yeah, was a really, that was a really interesting perspective from somebody that knows the established companies. He he follows Europe, but I think the themes are are um, generally consistent. And just talking about Netflix, I, I actually was listening to a, a very interesting podcast with Reed Hastings, who is the CEO of Netflix. And one of the things he was talking about, and it comes back to innovation and how you address innovation, is he said there was a when they moved from distributing DVDs by post to streaming by internet, that was a massive shift. And of course, you've got to build the company around that. But he said in his view, and it sort of echoes a bit what you're saying about the internet. His view of the internet is a bit like the way the, the automobile or motor car was introduced a hundred years ago. We're going to have a hundred years of internet streaming. So your innovation is now around how do you harness and evolve the, the internet? Not necessarily about what's the next thing going to be to replace Internet. So I think there is those, you know, those two paces of change. And I think, you know, it brings us back to E2 value. You've been going 20 years. You sort of waited for the right moment to release what you've been able to do. And you probably couldn't have done it 10 years ago because the technology wasn't there to integrate with and people were less comfortable using tech. So I think you're part of maybe the message for innovation is figure out what you can change incrementally and then figure out what you can change at a step change, but, but don't try and move too fast when things aren't quite ready for you. I like that, Matthew, but I use that. But I think another thing, and you and I have talked about this in the past, and uh, I've mentioned it, is, you know, you know, the automobile and the airplane were invented at roughly the same time. And one didn't replace the other. You know, they work together. They've stayed relevant, and they've been able to grow and continue. And I think, you know, that's a great challenge for all of us. We try to deliver in the core what keeps us going, as I mentioned, is data, but it's a quality product delivered to meet the customer's needs. We happen to work in the insurance world. We have to work with property insurance and structures, but we're focusing on those folks in that arena. And we have to be able to deliver things from a green screen behind the scenes to the most innovative technology. And you have to be able to deliver all the way across that spectrum. And I think we're some places, and maybe this is, you know, like a hippo versus a full stack carrier, you know, the full stack carrier has to deliver everything. They're, they're already in that business where Hippo can just look at the one thing or next. They can just look at that one piece. And it doesn't mean it's not innovative and it doesn't mean it's not important. It just means it's different than what some other people face. Yeah, exactly. Uh, well, Todd, that's been really helpful. Um, like one more thing, but before I add that, anything else we haven't talked about or I haven't asked you about that we, we should be talking about? No, I just wanted to thank you for letting me come. I hope I can make it there in October for the event. I look forward to that. I look forward to having you here in the States in November. I'm really excited to see what Insect has you know, brought to the table and how you're growing. I think uh, great congratulations to you and Robin and the team for what you keep delivering. Yeah, well, thank you. I think growing might not just in business scale, but I think we both of us have rather overindulged in the last, not you, Robin and I, I should say. <laughs> so we might be growing in a different direction. But I just did want to do a final 
call out for you. I know you're a keen golfer, Todd. So anybody listening who would like to take Todd out for a round of golf and talk about business and life, I'm sure you'd be very, very welcome. My standard of golf, they don't allow me on golf courses, but uh, I'm sure you might, you'll find some willing partners, Todd, when you come over. So hopefully. Oh, absolutely. I'd love to. Thank you, man. That's, that's, that's terrific. Well, it's better than me doing it. Well, Todd, I'll let you get back to your your day. It's been a pleasure. And yeah, look forward to seeing you face to face again after uh, a year and a half. Terrific, Matthew. Thank you very much. Well, all being well with travel, Todd will be joining us on the 11th of October back in the Steelyard. And please do let me know, or Todd himself, on LinkedIn if you'd like to learn more whilst he's over. Just a reminder, hello at instec.london, or you can get to Todd directly on LinkedIn. That's Todd, T-O-D-D, Rissell, R-I-S-S-E-L. And you've got to love that retro photograph he's got there. Well, that's all from us for today. But I think come September, it's time for all of us to get out of our bedrooms and into the office and back out on the streets. Hope to see you all very soon.